0: Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. That is the fastest I've ever changed in my entire life. My goodness, I might need a second to take a breath. (laughs) If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we're we're diving back into a sermon series on prayer where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Today, we're going to be in week two of that series. There's a story about an ancient uh, English king and a carrot farmer that goes like this. One day, one day, the carrot farmer showed up to the king's court with the biggest carrot you've ever seen in your entire life. The carrot farmer goes up to the king and he says, your majesty, I have harvested this huge carrot and I knew that it was only fit for a king, so I'm bringing it to you in your honor. The king was so greatly moved that he looked at the carrot farmer and he says, I have 300 acres of farm right next to your field that I want to give you so that you can grow more carrots and you can enjoy the profits. Well, one of the king's noblemen who was standing by him was like, wow, if the king would do that for a carrot, imagine what he would do in response to a real gift. So that day, the nobleman he goes out and he buys the most expensive horse in all of England, and the next day, he brings it to the king, and he says, oh, king, when I saw this great horse, I thought it was only fit for a king, so I'm bringing it to you as a gift. The king looked at the nobleman and said, thank you, and nothing else. Well, the nobleman, he's rather taken aback by this, and he sits back there for a second, and the king looks at him, and he says, you know what? Yesterday, the carrot farmer was bringing me a carrot. And today, you bought yourself a horse. Y'all, you know, the reality is, is for most of us, that's what our prayer life looks like. If we're honest and, and we think about it for just a second, it's really a means to an end. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one in this room who is that sinful, to be honest, but oftentimes I think: do I really want God in my prayers or do I just want what God can provide? Am I the only one? Am I the only one that catches myself thinking that? Y'all, here's the reality. I think about this, and I'm going to confess it to you. I want this church to grow. I do. And I really believe that Jesus is better than life. The reason why I want this church to grow is because I believe that when we teach God's word, God transforms lives. He changes marriages. He changes cities. And he will change you. I don't believe that we worship Jesus for a better life. I believe that we worship Jesus because he's better than life. But the reality is, that's not the only motivation if we're really completely honest, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think about, like if we had a bigger church, I know big churches have big church problems, but the reality is sometimes those problems are a little easier. Like I think about our staff and if we could pay all of our staff an adequate raise so that they can live in this city and never have to worry about their finances. I I think about the struggles that we have or the local missions that I'm constantly have to evaluate. Can we serve here or there? I can imagine a day whenever we don't have to make those decisions because we can just give everybody money because God has blessed us. I think about David who is going to be planting a church here. I wish that we could just fully fund David's church plant and he never has to worry about it. Day in his life, fundraising at all. Y'all, there's gonna come a day really soon where we're gonna have to move into a new building, and I I wish we never had to think about that. All I'm saying is this if we're really honest, sometimes we're like the nobleman that wants to bring the, the, the king a horse because really he just wants the blessing, he doesn't really care about the king. When the disciples asked Jesus to pray, I want you to get this. Jesus does not provide them with a prescriptive prayer, not like a do A, B, C, and D, and everything's gonna work out for you. That's not what he's doing. He's changing or shifting the paradigm of prayer altogether. Write it down. Here's what Jesus is doing. Prayer is more about relationship than request. That's what he's doing through prayer. It's a radical shift when you actually think about it. What we want you to see over the next several weeks is this relationship is more important than the request. And when you get that practically, what's going to happen is you'll begin to pray and it'll be easier to pray. So let me set the table for you again. Jesus, as his disciples asked them, by the way, I love this. These are Jesus's disciples and they're asking him how to pray. That should give you hope. Even the people closest to Jesus needed help with some things, Okay. When he asks him how to pray, Jesus gives them a couple warnings, a couple red lights beforehand, and and he says there's three things that we need to watch out for when we pray. I showed you these last time. Here, Here they are real quickly. We need to watch out for our motives. If you actually go back and you read this, the religious leaders of the day would stand up on the street corners and they would pray out loud and they would pray to be seen. Y'all, it's not too much different than whenever you've got some dudes that you're hanging out with and all of a sudden they resurrect old King Jimmy up from the grave and they start using where art thou's and stuff. You're like, I've never heard you say a thou a day in your life. Like, what are you doing when you're praying? And you get this real deep voice and you pray these real long-winded prayers. What Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Listen, here's what he says. Your father sees in secret. What what that means is he sees the secret things about you. You don't have to try to fake it. He already knows. He already knows what you need. So just don't do that. And then verse 7, listen to what he says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now check this out. Check out the juxtaposition here. The the religious leaders of the day is who he first addressed, and now he's addressing the Gentiles. If you know, Gentile is simply a pseudonym for um, non-believers. It's just another way of saying non believers. Here's what he's saying the unbelievers, they try to turn their affections towards God by making these word sandwiches that have absolutely no meaning. You, you know what I'm talking about? And the modern day equivalent is the, the politician who gets up on stage and says a bunch of babbling words and they said absolutely nothing the entire time. Don't do that. Underneath this, underneath this, these unbelievers, Their prayer is the same exact prayer as the religious leaders. Watch this. They are trying to be seen by God. They're trying to be seen by God. I think you could even make the case. Now, this is the danger in this. I think you can make the case that the unbelievers were watching the religious people and how the religious people said that you should access God, and they're actually mimicking those people because that's what religion does. It convinces you that you can be good enough for God. So not only did the religious leaders miss the mark, but now they're convincing the unbelieving world to do the same exact stuff. See, they didn't understand one fundamental thing that makes Christianity different than every other religion in the entire world. It's one word, grace, grace. I think that there's a great lesson to be learned here. You don't have to have a deep grasp of the theological nuances of scripture for God to be pleased with you. Matter of fact, you should be careful not to judge everybody else's relationships either because we're all on a different journey. Seriously, the smarter I get in life, the more I realize just how much I don't know. That's the key. Write this down. Write this down. Growth in the gospel is always about going deeper into the gospel. You never get beyond the fundamental truths of the gospel. You don't graduate from the gospel. See, these religious leaders of the day had so much theology that they wanted you to be impressed by them, but all they were doing was driving people away from God. Y'all, there is a real danger in this for us. We can become so deeply religious and pious that we create a a, a gap or or a chasm for the unbelieving world, and we create a bunch of pressure about a bunch of stuff that God's not concerned about. Those people, they might have started praying these deep theological truths, these unbelievers, And yet, they probably didn't even understand what they were saying. And Jesus was saying that their motives were religious. I even heard a pastor say this this week. I heard a pastor say that the mark of a good pastor is not just good sermons, but that he has a mature church. You know, that sounds really good, but it's wrong. A really healthy church? It's not a mature church, a really healthy church has a spectrum of people that go from unbelievers to really, really mature in their faith. And the idea is, is we're always growing and we're always learning because if you're really a healthy church, you're always reaching new people. And the job of the people who are mature in their faith is to bring along the other people and not judge them because they're not as far along as you are. See, be careful that we don't become accidental Pharisees. That's Jesus's point. The unbeliever and the religious person both needed to understand one thing if they're going to understand prayer, grace. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Grace is Jesus opening up the door to a relationship and adopting you into his family. See, I think that most of us miss grace because we believe the lie that grace is free. Listen, this is so game-changing when you get this. When you forgive someone, it's not free. Think about it like this. Imagine you go home today, Nolan, and and somebody hits your car and you're like, don't worry about it, I forgive you. The reality is the car still has to get fixed. The grace means that you are absorbing the cost into yourself on account of the other person. Listen, grace is not free. It's free to you, but it costs Jesus everything. He absorbed the cost of your penalty so that you can have a free relationship with God. The reason why grace is so amazing, the reason why you don't take advantage of grace is because grace costs Jesus everything. So what it does is it draws you into love. It doesn't draw you into religion. What Jesus is saying is if you will get grace, you'll get everything you need to know about prayer. That's why he says this. Listen to what Jesus says. For your father knows what you need even before you ask. See, you don't pray to receive. God already knows what you need. Like, I have four kids. I know that my kids need to eat. They don't need to ask me for dinner. A good father provides those things. What you are invited into is a relationship with him. So as we jump back into this prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, I want you to hold on to these two truths about prayer. If you're going to learn how to pray, you need to understand that prayer is about a relationship, not requests. And you need to understand that prayer is possible because of grace. Those two things are the paradigm shift that will get you from having to pray to God to getting to pray to God, and that's what Jesus is after. See, a prayer life that is about being with God will practically change your life, all right? Second stanza, we're gonna look at verse 10. Here's what he says. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, every single word of this prayer Every single word that Jesus is giving you is an invitation into something deeper. Honestly, this is the essence of all prayer. It's an invitation to to begin to pray some of these things into your life so that they will begin to change the way that you live your life. It's impossible. Think about it. It is impossible to pray this prayer, if you understand it, continually every day and not be changed by it. My challenge for you is what if you woke up every day and just prayed, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if you did that? You, you, you know, did you know how you stop hating someone? Can I give you this? Pray for God to bless him every day and eventually you'll stop hating them. because it changes these neural pathways in your mind to begin to think differently about things. You see the goodness in things. If you pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven every day, you'll begin to start thinking about God's kingdom more than your kingdom. That's what this is about. See, this is hard though. Let me tell you why it's hard. There's a theological war going on inside of you. If you didn't know this, See, the reality is, is uh, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You are new, but you still have this outward thing, your body, that, that, that Paul would say is decaying, that's still corrupted, so you're always battling yourself. The book of James would tell you that there's a war being waged within your members. Maybe the most honest chapter in all the Bible is Romans 7, where Paul finally says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I do. This is the apostle Paul who is telling you that he He's always at war with himself. He always feels bad about the fact that he's continually making mistakes. And then, then the, maybe the most beautiful part, he says, who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. The reality is, is there's a war going on inside of you. Have you ever felt that way? Like that's the story of my life. Sometimes right after I get done doing some dumb stuff, I feel awful. I feel this thing called shame that makes me want to isolate myself. And the reality is, is because there's a dualism happening in my mind all the time. I want to worship Jesus on one side of me and then I want to worship me on the other side. And I'm constantly battling that. Let me give you one practical principle that will help you deeply in your life. When you pray, posture your mind Romans 12, posture your mind on God's kingdom. See, your mind, the word repentance, if you didn't know this, is metanoia, which literally means to change your mind about something. You change what you're thinking. It's a directional pull. If you notice this, your kingdom come is directional. By the way, and I don't want to get into this, this is a side note, but the Bible talks way more about kingdom than it does about heaven. Matter of fact, the word kingdom in the New Testament is mentioned 162 times. The word kingdom here, It's not about location, okay? It's not talking about a place. It's talking about God's rule and reign, meaning this that God's kingdom can come now. You don't wait. The the modern Western civilization thinking about heaven is one day you die and go to heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about it like that. The Bible talks about like when you came to Christ, God's rule and reign is coming down and the worlds are converging on one another. You can actually begin to live out God's kingdom now and then one day his kingdom will be fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. Why does that matter? Because that changes the way you pray. You pray God's presence now. Think about it like this. You can pray God's kingdom come because you are inviting his presence into your life and into this world now. And when you think about it like that, that is a game changer. Y'all, you don't have to wait until you die to experience God's kingdom. You can have it now, and that's exactly what Jesus wants for you. Think about what that does to your mindset when you get this. It changes the way you pray. You're not praying for something future. You're praying for something present. You aren't praying to get stuff. You're praying that God would break through this broken world and bring his kingdom into your circumstances. Here's why. Let me give you a couple things that God's kingdom is that we aren't. Here's number one, if you want to be practical. God's kingdom is a kingdom without sin. See, the primary thing that makes this world so hard to live in is this word sin. Now sin, here's how I tell my kids, sin is a condition, it's not actions. Now it leads to actions, but it's it's not what you do, it's who you are. Sin has broken everything, and the root of all sins, if you go back to Genesis chapter three, is idolatry and rebellion. Like it doesn't really matter what you put in the place of this identity crisis, at the end of the day, every single sin can be boiled down to this, my kingdom come, my will be done, not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's I want to be the king of my own life. The only problem with that is we make terrible gods and our kingdoms aren't very good. Just turn on the news if you're still brave enough to do that. Listen, don't you long for the day when nothing hurts anymore. Don't you long for that day. You know, my, my spiritual hero died two days ago, um, Tim Keller. We named our fourth kid, Keller. If you didn't connect the dots, there you go. Um, and when he died, like something in me, felt torn between wanting to rejoice that his faith had now become sight and grieve that we lost somebody who changed the fabric of our world. Don't you long for the day that that doesn't have to happen anymore? When you don't have to be worried about the bills that you're paying, where you don't have to turn on the news and see that there was another school shooting and kids had to die or abortions aren't a thing anymore and we're not politically divided and fentanyl isn't killing our cities. Y'all, I hate, and if you're new around here, you might not know this, I hate, I hate the drugs that have killing my mom and my sister. I hate it. I hate sitting beside the bedside with you in a hospital room, having to grieve as you cry over another loved one that's sick and dying. I hate it. There's going to be a day when God is going to reach down his hand and physically wipe away every tear from your eyes. But the solution is not to abandon this world. See the solution is is to invite God's presence into your circumstances and start to build His kingdom. Like Jesus says, like a firm foundation in this world that cannot be shaken. Your circumstances might not change until everything is fully done, but your dispensation inside of those circumstances, the joy that you can have that is unshakable, is absolutely able to be accessed now, in the middle of all the mess. Sin has ruined it, but God is giving you an antidote for that, and that is His presence. Number two is this, God's kingdom is multicultural. That word here that you see in the Bible often is kainos. It means new. Listen to this. When Jesus comes, we aren't going to lose our racial distinctions. You got to understand this. But we are going to be a multicultural family. One thing you need to get out of your vocabulary if it is in there is that God is colorblind. That is an affront to God. You realize that God made all people which means that he made black people and brown people and white people and all those people are beautiful. It's, it's actually what makes God's kingdom beautiful is that it is multicultural. It's not the same. See, God created us to be a new, a kynos, a new kind of people, a kind of people that does not lose our ethnic diversity. I need you to understand this. Your ethnic diversity is beautiful. You're different than I am, and I love that. But what it does is it puts your ethnic diversity, as Dr. Tony Evans says, into a backseat, and your, your primary identity is your human identity. See, we're first a human family that has been made into a new family, the family of God. God's kingdom, kingdom diversity, is to be celebrated and not minimized. It's built on unity, not uniformity. That is a big deal. It's unified around a higher calling about being God's people. Listen, that means that God's kingdom people, it means that sometimes we have to sacrifice our preferences because we live for a higher vision. Y'all, homogeneity, meaning all the same, the homogeneity principle, it works. Just wanna be honest with you, it works because it's easy. But that's not God's vision for the world. God's vision for the world is something bigger. It's to create space for a bunch of people who are sacrificing to understand one another and they elevate God's kingdom over their kingdom. It is the most beautiful ethic in the world. Do you realize that the best thing that culture has to offer you is tolerance? I I don't know about you, but that's a low bar for ethics tolerance, tolerate one another. God didn't call you to tolerate one another, He calls you to love one another. That is a much deeper ethic that's only possible with the gospel. I want you to know that the greatest ethic in the world, watch this, is not diversity, it's unity. If you want diversity, go to a Falcons game. If you want unity, come to the gospel because what it does is it 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 tears down the dividing walls of hostility that this culture and this world cannot tear down and what we do is we communicate to the world that what we have in common is so much better than the things that we don't have in common and we are going to live for a better kingdom and as we do that we will build something more significant y'all when you pray that prayer God, tear down those dividing walls of hostility and bring somebody that doesn't look like me around my dinner table, you will begin to be more empathetic, you'll begin to be more caring, and you'll be more unified around something larger than yourself. See, you are a new kind of people. And that new type of person has the ability to build a better kingdom. Here's number three. God's kingdom is upside down. See, I think one of the most attractive things about the gospel is this. It's not a power grab. Think about it. Jesus the one you worship emptied himself of all of his power. He stepped off of his throne to become a man and he died to change the world. In God's kingdom, we don't have power grabs. We don't, we have serving grabs. See, God's kingdom is about serving one another and that brings dignity to everyone. When you show up in this place, can you imagine, can you imagine a world? Can you imagine a world where you're not trying to one up everybody, but you're super quick to lay down your rights to build up a better kingdom? Can you imagine if you're out doing one another in love all the time, trying to understand one another and giving the benefit of the doubt? Here's what I want you to see. Praying this prayer is a way of calling God's kingdom down. It's a posture that you can start to do now. We can serve one another now. When you show up here, And you put on a name tag and you serve, you communicate to the people around you that there is value in you. And when you've come into this house, I decided to wake up a little earlier because I want to welcome you into this place. And real practically, every Sunday, every Sunday should be somebody's last Sunday without knowing Jesus because they got to see him through you. Imagine if that's how we thought about this thing. See, I don't know about you, But there's something beautiful about a group of people who understand that the way to change the world is not through gross power grabs, but through lovingly serving one another. See, God's kingdom is built whenever homes look like this, whenever husbands and wives are trying to outdo one another in love. God's kingdom is built in communities whenever we're outdoing one another in honor and helping to serve one another. This is a place, this is a place that stops building the kingdom ethics of achievement and starts building the kingdom ethics of God by serving. When you pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, essentially, you're praying that, God, you would begin to create a world without sin. You would unite us around something greater than ourselves. And you would build a humble, serving community, not one that's built on power. Don't you think that a world looking like that would be better? Don't you? Here's my question, church. What's stopping us from beginning to build that kind of place now? Check this out. God's kingdom has already started through you. I think, I think this is where your mindset changes. When Jesus came to earth, he came to build his kingdom now. He didn't say, wait. He didn't say, one day I'm going to fix it all. As a matter of fact, look at, look at Matthew chapter 4. I think this is one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture. Verse 17. From the time that Jesus began to preach, this is even before he died, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See that? It's present tense. One of the most important concepts I can get you to get is this, is that when Jesus stepped foot on earth, he was crowned king and his kingdom started. He started building his kingdom at that point and it's being built right now. Listen, you can experience all that heaven has to offer right now. Maybe not completely, but you can begin to experience it through the joy and the contentment that comes through the freedom of knowing Jesus. I'm telling you, God's kingdom are different. God's kingdom people are different. You see, you may still sin, but watch this. Sin no longer has you. Jesus does. So that you can actually finally overcome some of those things. What would change in your life if you started seeing yourself as a kingdom builder now? If you really started to believe that the war was over. There might be battles going on, but the war is over. Jesus is seated on the throne. That he won the victory of his kingdom, and he has called you to the highest calling ever, which is to build his kingdom. What would change, church, if you got that? See, this is why a group of us boldly and audaciously left our jobs, moved states to a place where we knew nobody in order to build this kind of church. You all we don't care about buildings. We don't care about gatherings. We care about being a new kind of kingdom. And because we believe that this will stop, this will stop the things that are enslaving so many people that I love to this world. And listen, somebody told me the other day, he's like, man, you talk about travel sports families, you realize you are one of those people. I'm like, yes, I can make fun of it because I am one of those people. My son's playing in a travel sports tournament right now. There's no bashing on any of that stuff. I get it. But what kingdom are we living for ultimately? How do we intersect our lives with the things we're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality? And that, that goes for any aspect or sphere of life. Okay, whether it's your job or whether it's being a mom or a dad, where do you find your ultimate identity? That's really the question. If you find it in another kingdom, right, C.S. Lewis, if I've searched this world and I'm not satisfied, that must mean that I'm made for another kingdom. You were made for another kingdom. If you'll live for that, here's what will happen, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You realize that there is a thief that's coming to steal your joy, a joy that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. See, Jesus wants you to know that you can have joy, contentment. You can do all the things, and you can do it with joy and contentment because ultimately, ultimately, your satisfaction is found in him. I believe that we can create a space where you don't have to wear a mask or try to be impressive anymore. That no matter what your background is or what you carry into this space, we all worship the same God and we all understand undeserved grace because at the foot of the cross, we are all in the same position. I'm telling you, grace is the most liberating and most humbling thing on the planet because grace says this, grace says you don't have to be good enough to be here and it also says you can't be good enough to be here. See? Grace simultaneously, the cross simultaneously, destroys your pride and uplifts your brokenness. Because Jesus has paid the penalty, and it means that the only way you can receive it is to humble yourself before him. In this performance-driven world that looks great on the outside but is broken on the inside, City Church, we have something better to offer. A kingdom that is breaking through. A unity that this world wants to achieve, but they can't outside of the gospel. You realize the picture of heaven that you get in Revelation 7 is one day people from every tribe, tongue, and language, every ethnic group on the planet is going to be standing around the throne of God worshiping his great name. If you go back to the Roman Empire, the first civilization to actually try to achieve real pluralism, here's what they did. They actually built this pantheon for the gods and they tried to put Jesus in the middle of it to just say, let's all get along, right? Coexist together. But what ended up happening is the Christians looked at them and said, literally, over our dead bodies. Because Jesus is not one among many gods, he is the only God. And the Roman Empire looked at them and said, what exclusive bigots you are. The only problem is, the church was the only place on the planet to where people from every socioeconomic background and every race could actually come together because they were unified under grace. See, the very thing that culture wanted was the very thing that only the gospel could offer. Y'all, culture hated them, but the reality is, is grace is the great equalizer, and just like Rome wanted so badly this idea of pluralism, it's the same playbook that we see today in our society. I'm telling you, the way that culture is right now, listen to me, they're trying to achieve something beautiful, but they can't. What they need to see is a picture of it here. They They want this idea. See, the gospel is the most inclusive exclusivity on the planet. Yes, it's exclusive. Jesus is the only way. He's clear about that. And yet he says that anybody that wants to come can come. Anybody. No matter what your hurts are or your pains are, you can come into his kingdom. The only thing required is humility. You have to receive it. See, guys, the world longs to experience what God is building in his church. Here's the deal. Everything in this prayer boils down to one word. One word only. It's this word right here. Next one. Your. It should say your. We must have missed the slide. That's okay. Your. (laughs) It's okay. Your. Y-O-U-R. Your. City Church, my question is this. Do you want to build God's kingdom or are you willing to settle for your little kingdoms? Listen, I know what the Christian answer is. We all know the Christian answer. But the only way we're ever actually going to get God's kingdom to break through our little kingdoms is if we step off of our thrones and let him sit on it. That means that that our will is going to have to bend to his will. Here's the slide. Your will be done. (laughs) Look at that. That is genius. (laughs) Good job. Good job. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what I've come to learn. The most important question that your heart can answer, the most important thing that you can wrestle with, is the honesty of will you be willing to lay down your will to God's? Again, stop with the Christian answers and answer the real question, because I know it's hard. I wrestle with it all the time. Like, I love my job, I love my job. But it takes a lot of sacrifices, and it's incredibly difficult at times. And sometimes I wrestle with the fact, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Romans 12 says that we have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Do you know what the only problem with the living sacrifice is? They don't want to sit on the altar. Living sacrifices want to get up, which means you got to put them back down there every day. Every single day, this is what I do with my life. I put it on the altar, and I say, God, I want to live for your kingdom. I want your will and not my will. And every single day as I'm smashing myself back down on that altar, I'm simultaneously trying to get up from it. And I have to put myself back down. I have to continually do it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm telling you, this prayer will change you. It will change you if you will pray it because it will change you from the inside out. God will change your heart and he will give you joy beyond measure and that will make you the most beautiful person on the planet if you will pray this prayer continually. All of us long for the day where the world will be better. But the problem is, listen to me guys, listen. The problem is most of us want the kingdom without the king. And it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. See, here's what you need to know is you can't have a kingdom ethic no matter how much you want it without a king. You can't have moral absolutes without King Jesus. As much as you think that you can, there's no such thing as right and wrong if Jesus isn't on the throne. You are simply, and I don't wanna be crude here, but you're just simply an evolved ape. And survival of the fittest means that the fittest need to survive, which means that the morally right thing to do if God doesn't exist is for you to kill off the weaker species so that our preservation of the human race can continue to go on. The only problem with that ethic is you know it's not true. Matter of fact, there's no such thing as love without Jesus. You might experience love, but the reality is it's just chemical reactions in your brain that's creating a sensation that's not real. But you know it's real. You can't sit down with me and look at me and my spouse and tell me that I don't love her. But God is love. Love exists because God exists. Take away God and all the things that you believe about your ethical world no longer exist as much as you want them to, they just don't. And you don't evolve into this. Again, evolution would not work if you talk about lifting up the weakest species because that would absolutely destroy the whole idea of evolution. You would kill your own race. Listen, y'all, you don't want a kingdom without King Jesus. As much as it seems like we do, it is a train wreck. Even if you don't realize it, everybody longs for a perfect kingdom, but that perfect kingdom only comes with a perfect king, and God is bringing it down. See, the only way that people around you are ever going to start experiencing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is if they experience it through you as you bend your will towards His will. Charles Spurgeon used to say it like this this is a paraphrase. He says, I don't want my will. Everybody talks about free will. He's like, I don't want my free will. My free will is what got me into this mess. I want God's will. Y'all, prayers like this, prayers like this see God as good and they posture your life in such a way that you step off your throne. Again, living sacrifice continually to build his kingdom. When you do that, God will make his home with you. Again, write it down. Praying God's kingdom come is inviting God to build his home inside of you and in this world. A couple years ago, I, um, I did something I got to confess to you guys. Uh, I killed a man. Like, what? Yeah, people that knew him best called him Fat Billy. We, Fat Billy was a terrible human being. He snored like a grizzly bear. He had heartburn all the time. And I had to put that brother to death. Now, one day, I woke up, and I had this realization in my mind that if I continue down this path, I'm never going to be able to throw the football with my kids. My back was hurting all the time. I'd come off of a back surgery from a previous injury. Things were really, really bad. So one day, true story, I asked Allison, let's go on a run. We went to the Alpharetta YMCA, and we went on a one-mile run that took 13 minutes, and she beat me. It was the most devastating day of my life. I got to the end, and I was, (sighs) I couldn't breathe. I was embarrassed. You know what I did last year? I ran two marathons. And they were hard. They were really hard. But like all my greatest accomplishments in life, those medals ended up in a box that is in the garage, and that's another sermon for another day. But I got to about mile 20, and my first marathon, and if you've never run one, something incredibly wrong happens to your body. Your body's not built for this. You start breaking down, but the only thing that keeps you going for that six and a half miles, which is the longest 6.2 miles of your life, is the goal that you're pushing towards. If you're going to build God's kingdom, I think there's two things that you're going to have to figure out. Are you willing to die to some things? Because nothing good ever happens in your life if you're not willing to put to death some things that have to be put to death. To and number two, are you willing to be patient enough to get the prize that happens at the end of the rainbow? Here's what I know. God ain't gonna let you build your kingdom and his kingdom at the same exact time. It doesn't work like that. If you wanna see God's kingdom come, you're going to have to die to yourself to build his kingdom. See, you're gonna have to die to your preferences. Like I said earlier, building God's kingdom means that you're gonna be in the room with people who don't think like you, vote like you, or worship the same way that you do. I remember the first time we moved to these monthly prayer nights, okay? Um, the first time we did it, I, I looked around the room, and y'all, some of y'all, y'all, charismatic, all right, like with a capital C. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little uncomfortable. And then God hit me with something, and it was this. Are you want to build your kingdom, or you want to build mine? you want to hang out with people that think and act just like you, or do you want to build my kingdom? Sometimes we're going to have to let our preferences go, because the reality is, is there's no Manuscript on what worship style should look like. They're all okay. And we all worship differently. You know what I've learned? I I need you to hear me say this. People who care more about building their kingdom than God's kingdom, watch this, will always major on the minors, will care more about winning the argument than the relationship, and they will fail to see the bigger picture. Always. Every conversation that I have with somebody who's got a big old problem is majoring on the minors, caring more about winning the argument than the relationship and they care about their kingdom more than God's. See, God's kingdom is a growing kingdom, which means that we gotta make room for people, people who might not think like you. That that might actually mean that you gotta come sit in the splash zone with me up front every now and then so that people can come into the room and have a seat. Or some of you, some of you need to feel the calling to set your alarm clock 30 minutes earlier just to show up here early because the people who show up to this room early are our first-time guests who, when they walk into an empty room and there's nobody here, they get the wrong vibe. See, we live for a different kingdom, a kingdom ethic. And those are just simple examples, but a kingdom ethic that says not my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. And whatever that means, I want to live for a bigger picture. God, sometimes I've got to die to my preferences. Sometimes I've got to die to these things because here's what I care about more as I care about your kingdom than mine. And now here's the last thing I'll say about that. God grows things at a rate that I don't particularly always like, okay? God's never in a hurry. He's never late, always on time, and he's never in a hurry. My favorite TV show, Triple D, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Anybody else? Love it. Love it. Man, we love it so much that when I travel with my family, we always stop at a Triple D restaurant and eat there. Uh, one of the things they always do, crazy dude with the hair, right? They, they always take the meat, they season it all up, and they put it away. Why? Because it takes time for the marinade to get inside of there, doesn't it? And if you have unseasoned chicken, there's nothing worse in the world than that. You got to season it. You know, as much as I hate it, sometimes God has to let us sit down for a little while so that we can be seasoned with the gospel. Because there is nothing worse and nothing more dangerous in this life than somebody whose skills outpace their character. Let somebody have a platform before they have the servant's towel and watch the destruction that happens. Now, like I said, two days ago, my spiritual hero, Tim Keller, died at the age of 72. Here's what I want you to know about him because he's been publicized everywhere as being this godly man that finishes race well. Let me just say this real quick. Side note, he's not the only Christian who finishes the race well. That's more than norm. I just praise God you got to hear about him. Most of these brothers that sacrifice their lives do a great job. But think about this, at 72, he didn't publish his first book until he was in his 50s. And when he died, his family was sitting by his side, and they loved him. And he he served his church from 1989 to 2017, and his church loved him. Oh, he was seasoned and marinated in something better, a kingdom ethic that has shaped this world. See, it took me four years. Four years to be able to run my first marathon at a pace that I wanted to. And for the first year of running, I hated every single minute of it. I wanted to die every single day. Some of you need to know that you might not be who you want to be, but you're not who you used to be either. It's okay to just let it marinate a little bit. Just keep going. As you do, God is going to do a good work in you, and he's going to do a good work through you. Just pray this dangerous prayer. Pray this confession. Pray it over and over and over and over again, because it's a prayer of renewal, and God answers big prayers. Let me land the plane by telling you two things that God will do in your life if you will pray this prayer. Here's number one. He's going to build his home in you and through you by his Spirit. You know when Jesus was ascending into heaven, here in Jerusalem, um, with the, the disciples, and and they're sitting in this upper room, and he tells them to wait on the Holy Spirit of which he's going to pour out, and then he says the most interesting thing that I've ever heard. He said it is better for me to go away so that you can have the Spirit. Y'all, I don't know about you, but I'm like Jesus for, for real. Like I can have you right here, and you're telling me it's better that you're not here. So that, yes, do you believe that? Do you believe that that the Spirit inside of you is better than a Jesus beside you? You know why? Because there's one Jesus. And there's billions of spirit-filled believers in this world. And if every single one of us lived with this kingdom ethic where God's spirit was coming out of it, do you know what the spirit is? God. Listen, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. What if that oozed out of every single one of us? You don't produce those things the spirit of God produces them in you and that's a God's kingdom ethic. What if you lived like that that you were known for as people walked these streets they said I don't know about you but those people are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control type people. Billions of you lit up with the spirit of God, fanned into flame, you want to take God's kingdom built on earth as it is in heaven, live like that. That's the hope of the gospel. Because Jesus died to redeem this world, he can resurrect your soul too, and he wants to come live inside of you, which will lead to number two, it should lead to God building his home in our city. Okay, ultimately, I need you to see the bigger picture. God wants to use you to build his kingdom. Listen, city church, more than anything, we need to be kingdom people, and that means that we have a mission to go make disciples. God is a spiritual tornado. He never brings you in without sending you back out. John 20, 20. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. We end all of our worship gatherings by saying, you are sent. Don't miss it. It is our DNA. City Church, we are named City Church out of Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare of the city that God has sent us. I never want us to forget that when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts with intimacy with the Father, and then he goes directly to mission. Our Father and then build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't teach them just how to pray, he modeled prayer. Right before Jesus was to die on the cross, he looks at God and he says, take this cup from me if you will, but yours, your will and not mine. See, God himself built this kingdom ethic through Jesus Christ. City Church, it is a dangerous prayer, but there is nothing more beautiful than giving your life to this. You know, after I crossed that finish line on my first marathon in New York City, There was this overwhelming sense of accomplishment. I felt like death, and yet I felt this pride because I had spent my life on something. When I get to the end of my life, that's how I want to feel. With my dying breath, I want to sit back and say, I gave you everything, Jesus. I'm exhausted, and I feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude because you have allowed me to be a part of this thing. That's what this prayer is. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that this would be who we are. Kingdom people living for a better kingdom, serving a better king. God, would you give us the audacity to pray that prayer, to step off the thrones of our lives. Matter of fact, right now, Jesus, if there's anybody in this room that needs to, and needs to step off that throne, God, I pray that you would do it. I never even thought this, but the waters are open of baptism. If there's anybody that in here, God, that needs to do that today, may we not even leave this place until it happens. God, I'm tired of this ethic of just praying a prayer and everything's going to be okay. You have so much more for us than that. Jesus, you didn't just die for us to pray a prayer and continue to live our meaningless lives like we have. You died to give us joy, abundant everlasting joy God would you fill us with your spirit in this moment right now I pray that some of us would confess that we have been living morallessly autonomous that we need to step off of our throne and give our lives to you and then Lord I pray that you would humble us and that you would use us thank you Jesus that you use us that you don't you don't call the equipped, but you equip the called. Thank you for calling us. While we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. There's no performance here. It's just joy. You turned our, our criminal trial into an adoption ceremony. Oh, you've called us sons and daughters of the King. Lord, we love you. We're grateful. We worship you, King Jesus. Amen.